Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, I've got two very special guests. First, longtime producer of the show, Alfred Turner, and Sean Birch, who is director of public radio. And we're going to be talking about the journal past and future. So, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Alfred, you've been around as producer of the show for umpteen years. And over that time, we've had a, a number of interesting guests. And if we go back really to the early days of the show, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about within the first year, for example, the late Charles Joyner, author of Down by the Riverside, expert in, in Gullah culture and history, the Honorable Matthew Perry, And the show that became an evergreen, particularly on Veterans Day, Moffat Burroughs, the author of uh, Strike and Hold, his memoir of World War II. But then we had some some really light things. Dottie Frank, every time she got a new book out, Mary Alice Monroe. And, of course, you were baptized in sweet tea. (laughs) (laughs) Which was Ken Berger's collection. Ken Berger's. The late Ken Berger. The late late Ken Berger. Yeah. you know, that's one of the things about getting old and looking back at more than two decades of the show. A lot of some of our favorite guests, sadly, are are not with us anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 20, nearly 23 years. Yeah. And you were talking about some of the folks in the early shows. And, of course, I was I was working here, but I was not producing the journal until 2006. But. We, thankfully, we had some of those people that you talked about as repeat guests. Yeah, yes, that's it. We, we've never been shy about having people back if they mm-hmm. did a good show. And by the way, the first show that you produced, and I remember because we did it in Spartanburg, and we did it with Judge Bruce Littlejohn. Who was that? How old was he at the time? He was in his 90s? Yes. 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 And you know why I remember that? Why? Because we were doing it. For TV as well, you forgot to turn off your cell phone. I forgot to turn off. (laughs) I forgot to turn off my brand new cell phone. Um, And it went off in the middle of the shoot. (laughs) uh, Yeah. (laughs) Cut. (laughs) But it was it was a great interview. Oh, it was it it was a great interview. But Mm -hmm. needless to say, your first impression with the rest of the crew was um, (laughs) not the best. We we kept we kept you on anyway. I'll have to be honest. (laughs) I had to work to improve the impression I made with Walter Edgar. (laughs) <laughs> as well. <laughs> but it, we got over it. And uh, what can I say? It, it, it was um, it was a good match. Yeah, oh, it really it really has been. Mm-hmm. Once you decided that you could tell me that something uh, <clears throat> was not right. <laughs> I, I was I was in awe of Dr. Walter Edgar. And thankfully, Sherry Hutchinson, who was the producer for many years of Mary and McPartland, uh, said to me, you're the producer. Be a producer. And I said, okay. And so I gently began to say, can we not do that and do this instead? Yeah. Well, I think I was also very blunt and said, call it out, man. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you make it sound so wonderful because you smooth it out. Now, I do understand uh, probably your trepidation, Alfred, in in joining Walter, because uh, when I first started working here, I've been here for a little over five years um, I would mention to people I met uh, what I did and where I work, and they would bring you up, Walter, and uh, they would always be in awe that I'd get to work with you, with the Dr. Walter Edgar. And I knew you, I think, as a person first. I was not really aware of Walter Edgar's journal. I uh, did not grow up here in South Carolina. I had no real context for you. Uh, so I would always say to them, oh, yeah, that's that's Walter. He's he's a nice guy. Um, I, I don't think uh, it wasn't until probably a few years in that I was really starstruck by you. Uh, but thankfully, I think I had won you over at that point. So it was OK. <laughs> well, you and you had a hard act to follow with Sherry Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. That's um, true. And actually, there have only been three heads of radio since I've been working out here. Yeah. Started off with Tom Fowler and mm-hmm. I know he's no longer with the network, but it, it was his idea to create the show. Yes. He, and, he was basically the – now, would you say you were co-creators or was he the creator of the show? It was 
he came to me with the idea. Right. And then you hashed it out? We hashed it out. And initially when the show started out, we co-hosted it mm-hmm. and it was live. Yes. Oh my goodness, it was it was it was live. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's one other person we need to mention who's still around and that is John Gasque because mm-hmm. John came up with the name for the show. He did. It's yeah. a great name. You know, you found one of the first shows where we're asking people to submit names for the show. As a matter of fact, I found the clip where you're asking people, come to our then brand new website and submit names. And so that's how it happened. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tom Fowler with Dr. Walter Edgar, and we're glad you're with us. No name for the show yet. We're working on that, tallying it from the website. Uh, Go to www.scern.org. That's right. And uh, we're going to go through the end of January letting people vote. And do check the name site. There's some very interesting ones. And uh, we're pretty much going to go by listener response to this. Democracy. Democracy. But is it uh, vote early and often? Yes, this is the good old South Carolina tradition. You may vote as many times as you like, but no dimple chads will be counted. Thank you, sir. I think we had enough of that. And that, that's how it happened. We didn't like the names that were came in. And, and John was one of my former students, and he just said, you know, you've exposed us as students to going to the library and looking at journals that talk about everyday life. Mm. And he, said, ah. he said, that's what y'all are doing. So we said, bingo. So original source material. Original source material. Okay. Yeah. You know, I know we've talked on the show uh, many times before about how it all began. And you talked a little bit about working with Tom and how it was live at the beginning. What really started Walter Edgar's journal? Well, what really started it was the removal of the Confederate flag from the top of the state house dome. Mm. And it was covered live. And I got a call from Tom Fowler, would I come help do the play-by-play historically? I had been doing that uh, in the 90s for elections, Mm. you know, giving historic background. And so we did that. And after that, evidently, People were talking out here. They got some feedback from from viewers because we were doing it on radio and television. And then he said, you know, people really think, think history on the air might be fun. And I said, well, let's just not think about history. Let's think about culture more broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers, barbecue judges, what have you. Mm-hmm. And Tom said, sure. And we did start off live. Uh, and it was an afternoon show, Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Oh, my gosh, worst hour. <laughs> <laughs> now, but why was it the worst hour? Because of getting guests? Getting guests mm-hmm. live live on a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, with calls, right? Yes, with calls. And it just really didn't work. We quickly quit the call-ins. And then we got the chance to move to noon on Fridays. Which was better. Which was much better. And we also began to tape the shows. And the old studio, now, Sean, you're just too young to remember this kind of thing, <laughs> reel to reel, these giant tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so easy now when Alfred says, okay, repeat that. Uh, we'll drop that. Well, he can do it on his computer. Back then, he had to slice and dice mm-hmm. a piece of tape. Slice out what I didn't want, tape the two ends together of what I did want. The producers before that used to save what they had excised. Oh, yeah. I was always threatened with, you better be careful. <laughs> Being blackmailed with outtakes. I, and, out, uh, yeah. I have an outtake reel here. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, I, I'm just glad we went to recording. Now, when I started, we, we were already recording digitally, and that was 2006. It did make editing much easier, although I will tell you the first one I edited was with uh, the author of the book, It's Raining Militia, and I edited and edited and edited, and I didn't get the show ready for the first broadcast. So that was a bit of a snafu. How uh, did that happen? Uh, because I was brand new at editing that much recorded material on a computer 
Frankly, it was a new thing for me. Mm. Uh, small edits here and there on a 30-second promo or something like that. I had been recording prior to that a one-hour show called Hanging On My Baton for uh, the then maestro of the uh, uh, South Carolina Philharmonic, Nicholas Smith. And on that, that was recorded on a reel of tape. I mean, the other large show I did with uh, Rachel Hodges, who was the, the first lady reading, of South Carolina, re- reading with, with Rachel, Rachel, that was recorded mm-hmm. on tape. So this was a brand new thing to me to sit down and edit digitally. And I just got in the weeds. Well, we, we've explained to our guests how we work. Mm-hmm. And we know now the conversation will, and it's a conversation. I, you know, mm-hmm. early on, people would talk about interviews. No, I don't do interviews. I have conversation with my guests. Mm-hmm. Right. And I try to make sure I know as much about them as possible. Part of that was it makes it, it's obviously a better show, but having been on the other end going on and have somebody do an interview and not know whether I had written a cookbook <laughs> or uh, anything else, mm-hmm. we go, Alfred, and you can tell them what we tell our guests, because yes, you edit, but you don't have to edit three hours of jabber. No, 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 no. We we record we, for this show. We record for an hour, maybe slightly over if it's going well. So I tell people uh, we will be recording for an hour, or as long as it's fun, whichever comes first. <laughs> and because we have recorded sometimes for as long as it's fun, I've wound up with an hour and fifteen minutes worth of stuff that I can't put in the entire fifty-two minutes I have to come up with. So by saying we have the flexibility, we wind up with a lot of good stuff. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. So the two of you have been doing the show together for about 17 years, and you've seen some growth, uh, Alfred, on your end with uh, editing uh, digitally. Uh, How else have you seen the show grow from week to week? Well, from my point of view, prior to me, the show might have several segments And they might be talking to the then Speaker of the House, David Wilkins. Yes, that's right. And and then another segment with an author. And then a segment from Gene Owens. Yes. The the gentleman who just wrote a lot of great columns. Yes. And he had a regular feature on the show. So you might have three or four different pieces. So I said, why don't we just have one conversation? Yes. And that was my contribution. Yes. And that you had asked about the, the earliest days, uh, Sean, and that's the earliest days. It was a whole series mm-hmm. of of guests and having one guest in, in terms of preparation. It was easier. Some in one respect, another was harder because not only am I reading a person's book, but I really am doing background. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody said, how how long? It's like preparing for a lecture in class. It's probably four to five hours research for mm-hmm. every hour we ha- we have, and trying to get people to be at ease. And I think one of the things that has happened over the years, Alfred, is uh, particularly once we went to the one guest format, people listened in before they came on the show, and they found out it was a conversation. Two folks sitting on the front porch with sweet tea or something or an adult beverage, depending upon <laughs> who the who the guest was. And I don't, you know, never played gotcha. It was not an interview. It was mm-hmm. it was a conversation. And oh, by the way, if you do step on your toe or your tongue, Alfred can take it out, sure. and and we will. Uh, and we had because we were able to have a conversation. We had some f- very funny guests very entertaining guests. We had some very informative guests. We had some very passionate guests. I I think of... um, Vernon Burton. Vernon Burton, yes, (laughs) exactly. Uh, But we also had some very moving guests. And if, if someone is talking about something that means so much... I I told Walter the best thing we can do is tell stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And if our guest is telling a story or several stories, maybe about their lives or a story about a time or a place or a project they're doing, and they get into it, sometimes there were tears. And we would just let everything happen. And if there was a long pause, we would 
keep that in the program. You know, it was obvious it was moving well, to the people who were conversing. And, and the one that comes to mind uh, is Moffitt Burris. And that's when we were loaded on trucks and sent to just east of Hamburg, getting up close to the back door of Berlin. And as we traveled and we got close to a town called Woblin, we smelled this peculiar odor, and it kept getting stronger and stronger. And when we came into the edge of town, we saw this barbed wire enclosure with uh, several real long, low buildings in it, and, and people walking around out in the yard that were just human skeletons with skin stretched across their bones. The guards had disappeared, and the gates were still padlocked, and I shot the lock off with my pistol, and we went in, and they were very afraid of us at first. They didn't know whether we were friends or enemies, the ones that were still living. But the conditions there were just beyond description. You, you can't possibly describe how horrible it was. They had been systematically starved to death over a period of time. They were thrown in mass graves. There was a big ditch 10 feet wide and 8 or 10 feet deep, a couple hundred feet long. Bodies thrown in it. Some of them were still wiggling. The bodies in the buildings were stacked two and three feet deep on the floor. No sanitation, no water, no food. You just can't imagine the situation. Then we went into the town of Ludwigslust and uh, made all of the civilians come out and go through that concentration camp, dig up the bodies, and rebury them in the town square. So they got a real dose of what it was like. And initially, didn't they uh, explain to you or tell you they didn't know anything was going on? They did. We said, how, how could you allow this to happen? Well, we didn't know it was happening. We thought it was a work camp. But you, but you mentioned the smell. Yes. Which uh, other veterans who liberated camps have talked about, that the odor was just overpowering and you could smell I had to use a gas mask to go in the building. Mm. One story, one little story I want to tell you that's a very moving story, and uh, I generally get choked up when I, when I tell it, is I had a man that was assigned to my company, a young man about 18, was assigned to my company just a few days before we went into that camp. And he was a young Austrian Jew. When the Germans came into Austria, they took all of the able-bodied people and hauled them off, supposedly, to a work camp, but it was to an extermination camp. And he put up resistance, and they beat him and left him for dead. He recovered, escaped Austria, got to the United States, enlisted in the army, got in the paratroopers with the sole purpose of getting back over to Europe and seeing if he could find his parents. And uh, so when we got to the concentration camp, we started asking people. He, he and I were together, and uh, he was my interpreter, and uh, asking people if they knew his family. And finally, we got to a priest and asked him, and he said, well, son, I don't know how to tell you this, but your family was put to death just a few days ago. Mm. If you've ever seen a look of devastation on a kid's face, it was on his as he slumped to the ground and uh, started crying, and I sat down beside him and I cried with him. Mm -hmm. oh. Still after all these years. And he talked about holding that young man in his arms, and tears were streaming down his face. You know, Alfred, I get the question a lot, and you probably have too. What's your, what was your favorite show? And uh, I, the flip response is, who's your favorite grandchild? <laughs> uh, but looking over the list, another moving show which really broke ground was when we had all but one of the Conroy siblings in the studio. Pat Conroy. Yes, Pat Conroy talking about life with the great Santini, mm -hmm. something those those siblings had not ever done before. Mm -hmm. And the atmosphere in that in that studio was just absolutely electric. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it, it went well, but nobody had any idea where it was going to go. You know, we thought all families were like that. You know, we thought all families moved every year or twice a year. So we, we had no other family to compare it with. Yeah, I didn't know that everybody wasn't going home after school getting beaten up. I just thought, you know, that's what a kid did. You know, you know, you finished school, said goodbye to everybody on the bus. I mean, is this nothing? I mean, surely you had childhood chums. Y'all didn't talk about, well, I got— There were other military well, kids. Yeah, yeah. and also— You know, we moved every year. Our childhood chums were we moved to a new city. It takes a while to you know, develop you friends. You can't get a chum right away. Kathy mm-hmm. was, you know, one of the few I knew of all the kids that, you know, could make a friend. She'd always make one friend. You know, Mike and Jim had such bad personalities that they never made a friend during the entire school year. It took me a long time to make friends, and then we consistently moved every nine months. So, you know, I didn't spend the night with somebody until I was a junior in high school. I I never would have anybody spend the night with me because I didn't want them being thrown through a plate glass window by Dad. Now, Pat, that was not true. In your college, you brought a group of friends home to the house in Virginia, where, remember the room? Oh, my God. That I slept in an unheated basement, but your room, it was you had do- to access through a closet. A closet for a dog. And I remember <laughs> you had Mike— to get on your knees. I had to get on my knees. And I, I have a guy that I played basketball with, and so I'd never been to the house, and they moved on me. And so and Mike says, hey, you want to see your room? <laughs> and so he goes to his closet in this unheated basement, pulls open his clothes, and there's a little doggy door for me and John DeBross to slip through. And as we were going through it, DeBross says, nice bedroom, Conroy. <laughs> and we still laugh. We, we had some of the most terrible bedrooms you've ever seen. And this was just part of the military life that we, you know, I guess got used to. At least that bedroom had a, was a great hiding place for us when Dad got mad. Oh, I mean, we would head down a hiding there. place. Yeah. Uh, my job that was mainly just to throw something out there and let them mm-hmm. talk, talk to one another. With their amazing, wonderful, dark humor <laughs> coming in to help just— even things out when it was tough talking about things. Pat and his brothers and his sister would just all of a sudden say something and the room would be cracking up. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, we've had we've had guests that uh, humor. You mentioned Gene Owens mm-hmm. uh, and his and his columns. And certainly Dory Sanders, every time she came on, just mm-hmm. a wonderful peach farmer author from. York County. There was an awful lot of energy that came out of her. Just all positive. Oh, oh, yeah. oh. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking about when she talked about having to deal with folks up north in New York uh, <laughs> when trying to get her, her cookbook. And because she'd just say, a pinch of this and a pinch of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no uh, measurements or anything like that. I'm not sure that those people ever knew what they'd gotten their hands on when they mm-hmm. got their hands on, on Dory, but they found out. They found, they found out. Mm-hmm. So, Walter, we need to do an ID. All right. Alfred and Sean, we've got to pause and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I am talking with Alfred Turner and Sean Birch from South Carolina Public Radio about Walter Edgar's journal, past, present, and more importantly, we'll be talking about the future. And we've been talking a lot, Walter and Alfred, uh, about conversations, and uh, you've mentioned a few times, Walter. Uh, about how the show is a conversation and this change from having multiple topics on an episode to just one topic for an hour. And I think, uh, one, that really speaks to sort of the perfect marriage of this show with public radio, of having that time to really devote to one topic or one specific person and go in depth and and understand uh, why they're important and why they're relevant to the people of South Carolina and beyond. And that's a perfect segue into talking about the future of Walter Edgar's journal and some of the conversations that we've had, the three of us, Mm -hmm. over the last uh, almost three years, Mm -hmm. probably about three years, 
Um, right around the beginning of the pandemic, the two of you came to me and uh, we started talking about the future of Walter Edgar's journal because we were being impacted by not being able to record new episodes for many months due to COVID restrictions mm -hmm. and not being able to get into our studios here and the availability of guests. Uh, yeah, even, even when the restrictions were lifted, we had guests who did not want to come in. And one of the things that we had already always striven for was to have an in-studio guest because mm -hmm. it's not just voice, but sitting here as we are now, I can read your mood, your reaction. Mm -hmm. If all of a sudden you're, you're folding your arms, kind of, I'm going to say, holy moly, what did I just... <laughs> I'm just no, seriously, that, that helps the conversation go. And over the telephone or however we do it, all sorts of modern communications, we can go to Hanoi and Phnom Penh, as we found out recently. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's okay, but I think it's more effective to have the live guest. But not being able to have people in the studio uh, really made us think about the future of the show and the sustainability of Walter Edgar's journal as we have been doing it for the past 17 years or so. And we had a lot of conversations about possibly retiring the show, maybe reducing it in some way. We started digging back into our archives and uh, listening back to older episodes, which was wonderful because they're still great conversations with great guests mm -hmm. from over the years. But we had to make a decision about where the program was going to go from here. And after a long time and a lot of deliberation, we finally landed on moving the program from broadcast radio here on South Carolina Public Radio to it becoming a podcast-only program. I think we can talk a little bit about the factors that have led to that. As we said, availability of guests, the kind of topics that we want to cover, and I think most importantly, uh, producing a, a weekly, hour-long radio show is a lot of work. It can sound pretty easy when you're listening to it on the radio of several people just talking and having a conversation, but there is a lot of work that goes into the research, as you said, Walter, and the production side of it and editing with you, Alfred. Mm -hmm. And you kind of live and die uh, by the time that you have. Um, to produce an episode of Walter Edgar's Journal for the radio, it has to be 52 minutes long every right. single week. Yep. And sometimes, even though the guest may be a wonderful person, the topic doesn't exactly fit a full hour. The sustainability of an hour is, is sometimes difficult there are things that we've wanted to cover because they were important. Mm -hmm. They would be important to the community or it would be somebody who was starting a new project at a nonprofit, something like that. But we didn't think we could sustain the conversation for an hour, right. even though the topic was important and the guest was interesting. And, you know, you were talking about the workload. Of doing that, as well as the lack of um, availability of guests post COVID, and then there's the fact that I'm retiring. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the other elephant in the room. Al I'm retiring uh, only in one way, Alfred. What your personality is anything but retiring. Uh, <laughs> uh, my wife can tell you stories, but anyway, so resources. Uh, the constraints of an hour on the air, the constraints of every week filling an hour. Yeah. Uh, even though you do have a great back catalog, I've had people say to me in recent months, are you going to air some new shows? And I would say, we do have more people coming on. We'll have a couple of new shows in the coming month. But so many of the academic presses who put out the books, who are often the inspiration for some of the topics we'll cover, they got hit before COVID with printing costs, those were rising. And also the fact that people were not reading as much, mm. or at least not reading as much nonfiction history. And so there it, it all adds up. And, and here I go, throwing the monkey wrench into the works, and I'm retiring. So I think a podcast is a great solution. 
something he was about to say. Walter, you were about to say, I think, something about the flexibility of a shorter format. Yes, the flexibility of a shorter format. Captain Woody. Captain Woody Collins. Fabulous book that he he sent sent me. And the book was called, Where Have All the Shrimp Boats Gone? A Hundred-Year History of the Shrimping Industry in the South Carolina Low Country. And it was one of those things, a perfect 30-minute show. Last year of the book, I canvassed every shrimp dock in the state of any importance. I might have missed some, but all the, all the things that actually had boats at them. And there were less than three dozen shrimp boats left in Buford County in that, in that period of time. Now, here's something that we talked about a little earlier is in all this goings on with shrimp and shrimping and, and technology and advancement and better catchability per boats and more horsepower and everything, the shrimp never cared about what was going on. <laughs> they didn't care if the price of fuel was high or if it was low. They didn't care if the Japanese or the, or the Hondurans imported shrimp and drove to price. They didn't care about anything. And that's the case today. The shrimp are still doing what they've always done. Some people think that with that many boats that possibly the shrimp were fished out, but shrimp are like mosquitoes. If the conditions are right, you will have them coming out of your ears. Now we're, we're going to be able to capture things like that and they'll be on the new journal. And that is a great example of a good 30 minutes with someone who has such a wonderful South Carolina story. It, it's, it's an incredible South Carolina story. He shrimped, or see, shrimpers say they fish. Right, they do. He fished since he was 16 years of age. And now he's in his 70s. And still going strong. Yeah, well, retired from trawling for shrimp, fishing, but he goes out with his cast net and, and as people have done for centuries before the commercial shrimping industry started here, he casts his net, he gets his shrimp, he takes them home, and, you know, he knows what to do with them. And this will be available on our website, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. You'll go there and you'll find on-demand audio. You can find it there, or you can look for Walter's smiling face because we'll have an icon there. And you can click it and you can listen to this as of the first Friday in June. And and you mentioned two things I think to remind our, our listeners is first Friday, mm-hmm. the first and third Fridays first and third. of every month, it will be released that morning, the first and third. So that we we're you know, we're pretty much guaranteeing you two new podcasts and we'll also uh I might say as a our adjunct show, uh A's to Z will be broadcast. Right. Uh, so that has not changed. In fact, frequently, I'll do my A to Z, 145 words, <laughs> one minute, and you'll say, darn, that person really sounds interesting. And Wish we had more time. Wish we mm-hmm. had more time. And we're still tinkering with the idea that we might do that on occasion. Sure. And uh, let's say this straight out. South Carolina from A to Z is also available at South Carolina publicradio.org. You can always listen to it, particularly if you catch the tail end of it on the air and you go, what was he talking about? Well, you can go and listen to it. You can also download it on Spotify and Stitcher. See, this is what a podcast app on your phone will do for you. You It'll be there as soon as it's out. So I think it's an opportunity to really get more new material, good material from great guests twice a month. Twice a month with the flexibility mm-hmm. to change things, as you were saying, Walter, uh, you might eventually use that idea to go deeper into something you cover on South Carolina from A to Z. Yeah, that to me is is exciting as well. Let me mention, too, that all of the episodes since 2011 of Walter Edgar's Journal are on our website and have been available as podcasts, Hmm. but they are all on our website on demand. You can go there and listen to them. If you've heard something even three years ago, you can go find it. And you may ask yourself, well, who's going to be doing all this work? Since you're retiring, Alfred, I'm going to be doing it because I'll be working part-time. What I am retiring from, basically, is all the other duties when I leave here as a full-time employee. I will be coming back to do Walter Edgar's 
Journal, the podcast in South Carolina from A to Z. And I, I've got to thank both of you for being willing to make this adjustment. There are a lot of good reasons, as Sean has already stated and Walter has too, to make this leap to podcast only. But it, I'm so thankful that I get the chance to continue this relationship with both of you as coworkers. But also, I, I don't, I would miss not being able to do these interviews. And one thing we should mention about the podcast, you're hearing Walter and Alfred interact on this episode today. There's going to be a lot more of that on the podcast. Alfred is going to be a voice that comes in to the conversation, and it will be uh, a lot more fun, a lot more loose, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will be wonderful to have Alfred. Alfred is uh, such a big personality that having him in these conversations with our guests moving forward will add a lot. And I'm excited about that as well. Well, thank you. I am, too. It's been fun, some that we've recorded. Well, as I said earlier, Alfred, you are not a retiring personality. (laughs) Alfred and Sean, we've got to pause and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I am talking with Alfred Turner and Sean Birch from South Carolina Public Radio about Walter Edgar's journal, past, present, and more importantly, we'll be talking about the future. But, you know, talking about guests, I was just looking at a list of the ones that we've already recorded because we've already recorded several of the podcasts that will be starting in June. Uh, We talked about Woody Collins. There are others here, too. Would you mention some of the ones that you found particularly interesting? Some we have yet to record. Some but yet, but we, what we've already recorded, the story of Cecil Williams and his South Carolina Civil Rights Museum. Now explain who Cecil Williams Cecil is. Cecil Williams is basically the unofficial photographer of the civil rights movement in South Carolina. He started taking pictures when he was eight and nine years old with the Brownie Hawkeye mm-hmm. uh, a, a gentleman from Orangeburg, South Carolina, and he was an active participant, but he he was an observer even before he became a participant in the 1950s and 60s, and he has taken in excess of a million photographs, right, which are now located. They've been digitized and are at the museum in Orangeburg. It's called the Cecil Williams South Carolina Civil Rights Museum. Yes, right, and and Janie Harriet. Who is the executive director, I believe? She is the executive director, and she was a, was formerly with the African-American uh, History Commission here in South Carolina. And they will be on one of the upcoming podcasts. They will. I'd like to maybe play a clip of them talking about some of this, because many people don't know that they know about Brown v. Board of Education being the Supreme Court case that said segregating public schools. Segregation is per se discrimination and is therefore unconstitutional but, and the, be- was, but the beginning of that case it, it the beginning of that case was uh, Briggs v Elliott here in South Carolina Clarendon County Clarendon County and judge Waitis Waring actually used that expression in his dissent mm-hmm. in circuit court of South Carolina that segregation is per se discrimination mm-hmm and that folded in with with other cases and became Brown v. Board. Yes. The Briggs versus Elliott case um, is very important to our museum and the collections we have there. In fact, as you walk into the front entrance of our museum, it is prominently uh, displayed uh, and represented with photographs that I took because I became involved with the Briggs case very early on at 12 and 13 and 14. My mother, in fact, taught for the Reverend J. Delane, the AME Allen University graduate um, and minister who um, really gathered the ministers together and who worked very closely with Thurgood Marshall. It was also my great pleasure, and um, I look upon it as a moment of pride, that um, on one of the trips to South Carolina, to Charleston, the president of the NAACP took me to photograph Thurgood Marshall arriving on the train. And so I took one photograph, and of course that photograph is in many history books today. So anyway, that's just part of the conversation, and they're also talking about how they are trying to move the current museum from its rather modest but very uh, beautifully done headquarters in a residential area of Orangeburg 
down to what I guess you'd call ground zero for civil rights in Orangeburg? Yes, it's it's a it's a block where uh, the bowling alley that became the focal point for a student protest that led to the Orangeburg massacre across the street from South Carolina State University and Claflin University. It was a, that was in Orangeburg the center of civil rights protest, um, which were catalytic to much that went on in South Carolina. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're working to move it there. So, um, and on an interesting note, we're going to have a repeat guest, John Martin Taylor. We had him on the show a decade ago when he came out with his cookbook, Hoppin' John. It was republished, yeah. Yeah, and now uh, he has hopped across the world uh, to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. He has a new book entitled Charleston to Phnom Penh, A Cook's Journal. He was one of the early chefs that began to promote low country cooking, and as it, as it became a fine art, mm-hmm. uh, upscale, everybody was going to do it, and the number of restaurants proliferated. Well, let's hear a little bit of the conversation with Hoppin' John Martin Taylor. Well, Walter, to begin with, I am not a chef, and people think when you write cookbooks that you're a chef, but... I've never cooked for money. I only cook for love. I am a culinary historian and a cookbook author. (laughs) Lord knows I would make it in a restaurant about five minutes. As soon as somebody asked me to hold the sauce, I'd probably go ballistic. Or or if I had to figure out food costs and all that or or deal with employees. (laughs) But I made my living actually as uh, as an artist for years and years and years. And um, I was living in Paris and I applied for the job as the art director of a magazine. This was in 1983. And through a series of weird coincidences, I got hired as the food editor instead. And my life literally changed overnight. And we always have historical programs. And I think when we have the folks from the Florence Museum mm-hmm. and be talking about the Francis Marion in the PD exhibit, which is an art exhibit, uh, because Francis Marion has no, nobody has ever actually done a real likeness of him. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Right. But there are all sorts of paintings that depict the Swamp Fox and his actions during mm-hmm. the American Revolution. And that's that's what this exhibit is about, mm-hmm. are the various paintings showing Marion in action. So we're going to have Ben Ziegler, who's an attorney from that area, who's been promoting the Francis Marion Trail, mm-hmm. and uh, Stephen Mott from the Florence Museum to talk about that exhibit. I'd like to mention we have another guest who is returning, who was yeah. recently on the journal. And we're talking about Ben Beard, the author of The South Never Plays Itself. That was one of those shows where you said, let it go as long as it's going and mm-hmm. enjoyable. And we still had lots that we wanted to talk about. So He has been a film reviewer and has studied film and has been just a, a voracious consumer of cinema. His writing style is a little bit cheeky at times. I think it's very on the nose. It it just, he calls it like he sees it, but usually in a very clever way, yeah. he will bring out both the pros and cons of a movie. But being someone who was born in the South and lived here up until he moved to Chicago, he decided he wanted to put a book together about films that depict the South mm. and how they fall short or how they don't. He's coming back. He's coming back, and I'm delighted. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's down the road, probably further into the summer. But he is such a good guest, we're going to have him on, too. So we should say again, Walter Edgar's Journal, what you are listening to right now is our final broadcast episode of the program. Well, it, it is, and I've got to give Alfred a hanky because he's... <laughs> he's tearing up over there. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's, you know, it's bittersweet. I'm not getting any younger. I'm pushing 80, as my grandfather would say, or the 18th century. He's in his 80th year. Um, (laughs) So, you know, things are going to come to an end sooner or later. But the idea of the podcast is going to enable the show to continue for the foreseeable future. I'm delighted to be able to do that. And the fact that public radio 
want to do that. When we had the open house celebrating our 50 years several weeks ago. South Carolina Public Radio started in 1972. Mm -hmm. And Alfred and I were there to greet folks. And there's a mixed reaction. Some older listeners are not really comfortable, although we've explained how podcasts work. But then there are others who of all ages, who said, well, yeah, 30 minutes, that's great, because sometimes I can't hear the whole show, mm-hmm. and they don't go back to get it. So now, with a 30-minute podcast, they get it. Yeah. They and get it. Yeah. I was just going to say, available not only on our website, as they are now, you'll be able to listen to it there. If you have a podcast app on your phone, you can go to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, there's more. Who else do we have? Uh, Google Podcasts, yeah. Amazon. You can listen to it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. You can listen to it in the SCETV app. You can listen to it on NPR One. Yes. Because it's a featured podcast. And you can ask your smart speaker to play Walter Edgar's journal. It's available anywhere that you would be listening to your podcast, listening to your on-demand audio. And Walter, I am so excited to continue the program in another format um, that is, uh, as you said, more digestible to be able to listen to a half-hour conversation. But also, you can listen to it on your schedule. You, the listener, are able to, you don't have to make an appointment to come here and listen Fridays at noon or any of the weekend airings that we have of Walter Director's Journal, you can just pull it up and listen to it whenever you want to. With those episodes coming out the first and third Friday of every month, beginning June 2nd. Yep. And on the rare occasions that there is a fifth Friday, we will have a show. Yeah, a special bonus show. South Carolina from A to Z. The real story. (laughs) Now, you will basically take those interesting segments and expand them. And there is a fifth Friday in June, so ha, ha, ha. And it may also be an opportunity to, again, dig into the archive of Walter Edgar's Journal, pull out programs, episodes that we have not been able to air uh, for a long time. Maybe they're from 22 years ago at the beginning of the show. But we can pull out and play excerpts from them and mm-hmm. provide some context of where we were then and what has happened to that guest or that topic since then. Well, and we mentioned earlier that some folks like Pat Conroy and Dottie Frank aren't with us. And in going over the list of shows that we had picked for the 10th anniversary and mm-hmm. then the 20th anniversary, which then became the 21st anniversary. Because of COVID. Because of COVID. Treasured guests like Abby Salinger, Chaz Joyner, Judge mm-hmm. Matthew Perry. Yeah. Those folks aren't with us anymore. And I think that, for example, the several interviews with Judge Matthew Perry, civil rights icon in South Carolina, we might think about going back and taking excerpts from that show and Alfred and wrapping it into a podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I hate to do this, but I'm giving you the wind-up sign, Walter. So maybe I should ask you, any any last comment for our listeners before we sign off? One last comment. I am not wearing a bow tie. <laughs> not right now. Not, not right, right now. Not, not right now. Casually dressed. I'm very much at peace with what, what we're going to be doing. In fact, I'm no more than at peace. I'm delighted about the new directions of the journal. Alfred, that our relationship can continue for mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. Another decade or so. At least, please. (laughs) Most definitely. Uh, With with the support of of Sean and uh, the folks here at Public Radio. The old journal, since 2000, it's been a wonderful ride. And this is the wind-up. Yeah. But it is really the segue to the new show. And anything from you, Sean? Just that I... I'm so excited to make that transition and bring in the listeners that we have for over the last more than two decades here on South Carolina Public Radio, but also bring in new people who are just looking for podcasts and information about our state's history and our culture and our art and the things that matter to us Mm -hmm. as South Carolinians. Well, and I'm going to say this 
because uh, I'm approaching a birthday and I am of a certain age. <laughs> if you are not sure how to access a podcast on your tablet or on your computer, your home computer, or particularly on your smartphone, call your great niece or your nephew or your or your son or your daughter and say, would you come over here and make sure I can get Walter Edgar's journal on my phone? And with that, I will say it has been an honor and a pleasure to serve you on my part with this show for the last 17 years. And we're looking forward to more. This is going to be so exciting. All right. And as we say at the end of the podcast, we'll be talking to you soon. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. As I mentioned in my last comments, it's been a bittersweet show, talking about 23 years and the wonderful men and women we've had as guests, and our longtime association together with Alfred and me. The journal has been a big part of my life, but it's going to continue to be a big part of my life, just in a different format. And we promise with our new podcast that we will continue to discuss issues, events, people, and history, and anything that we relate to South Carolina, but it all comes back to South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Thanks for listening today to The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.